This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me for the Country Hour today across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff. The almond industry has released its production outlook for the year, but there's a bit of an unknown in there, and that is what the difficulties getting bees onto almond farms at the crucial pollination time will mean for yields. The jury will be out on that one until we actually see some yield data. Um, The ABA has mapped where the stocking rates were down, and then we'll go back into those orchards with the cooperation of the farmers and see what those sort of yields are to get a, a, bit, a much better insight into whether the stocking rates that we've traditionally had, uh, which are five or six highs to the hectare, are required. So some interesting research there, sort of forced upon them, but we'll have more on that soon. And what do Riverland growers make of the money the government has put towards developing a wine industry blueprint? We'll have more on that in the next half hour. But first up today, how do you feel about butter and cheese? I'm a pretty big fan. Australia's dairy production is falling to the point where milk companies don't actually make enough butter or cheese to supply the local market. Meg Powell spoke to analyst Steve Spencer to find out why. So um, milk prices were set um, last June. Um, they said annually. So when around that time we had a, a really strong uplift in uh, dairy product prices, commodity prices, on the global market, which flowed into this into this country because we are we are quite exposed to the world market. Um, so that situation was caused by really an acute shortage of milk globally, uh, with every major production region declining. Uh, we had still pretty good demand, so that created a big squeeze. And as a result, you know, prices lifted. So that flowed into the prices that were set at the start of the season. So what's what's happened since that time? While farm gate prices are very strong and they've you know been set at record levels across Australian regions, and pretty much I guess the average in the manufacturing regions, we're up nearly ten dollars kilo milk solids as an annual you know estimate of milk prices paid at farm gate. In the meantime, however, the uh, the world market has softened. Naturally, high prices eventually you see some impact. Either you get more milk being produced in response to that, or you see some pushback on demand at high prices. Both those things have occurred, and so the world market prices have fallen. However, in the Australian market, we haven't seen such a big direct impact of that effect because we've we've become a bit disconnected from some of the major price movements globally because of our domestic milk shortage. And this is where I um, ask you to get out your crystal ball and and say, what are you expecting is going to happen at the end of this season when we come to setting the prices for next season? Okay. So we've seen milk production in Australia down, you know, we've seen some fairly large declines across the southern regions and that is, it's creating or making a product shortage much worse in terms of butterfat. So we, we... don't produce enough butter for our own market nationally anymore. We've seen a change in the way, because the milk is declining, we've seen a change in the way that one of the major retailers is sourcing product rather than buying product, it's buying milk and processing that. So that's caused you know, 
prices for cheese and butter to stay relatively stable and not follow the world market down. So we don't believe there's going to be a very large decline in farm gate prices next season. We don't think they'll they'll alter significantly from what we're seeing at the moment based on current indications. Because of that, if you like, immunity, we've got an immunity card uh, from what's going on globally with cheese and butter, and that's that's going to keep the market reasonably stable at farm gate. Which is uh, good news for farmers, those good prices. But in the meantime, production is down, as you said, and we know that uh, there are less producers, out, less farmers out there than there were. What's going on there? So, look, this is this is causing a lot of people to scratch their heads, uh, you know, nationally. Um, uh, I guess the, you could put it down to there's a whole lot of factors going on that are causing that um, that change uh, or that that decline in output. But pretty much, um, if I'd said the major reason is that the the exits or the attraction of capital values for farms and um, cattle, etc., have also been very high, so that's made it quite attractive to look at exiting the industry. Um, <clears throat> but in, in many cases, producers are facing labour shortages, they're facing rising input costs. It's getting a lot harder to produce milk with the current resources. So a combination of you know extractive exits and more difficulties in resourcing the farms is, is combining, and they're probably the major reasons why we're seeing an exodus occur. And is public demand for dairy products still high? And how does that compare to the supply? So within Australia, demand is still quite good. We've seen it come off a bit at higher prices, and the consumers are doing it a bit tougher with the, you know, the way the economy is going and households facing higher inflation uh, and cost of finance. So that is starting to take a toll, and we are seeing a, a small decline in demand, but it's nothing like the extent of reduction in our domestic milk supply. I mean, we are an imp- we, we rely on imports for about a third of our cheese market, um, as I said, more than half of our butter market. So we are um, not having a shortage of product as such, but simply the pressure on prices is not is not so strong because of that softening in demand. So globally, demand is weaker. Um, the, the big global effect at the moment, which has caused the market to soften, is the fact that China is um, just coming out of some fairly strict COVID restrictions, which has reduced their import demand very significantly. So that's that's caused a, uh, a reduction in milk powder prices and the prices of butterfat, um, especially in New Zealand. There's a national dairy conference on next month down in Hobart. What's some of the hot topics that are going to be talked about? One of the topics going to be addressed in that is, so with this um, with this decline in milk production, can it be stopped? I mean, will it, you know, is, is it capable of being turned around? Um, and one of the topics that my co-director, Joe Bills, and I will be talking about is what does it look like if we go forward to the end of the decade? Um, what's the industry look like when we've, you know, had a big decline in milk? Uh, and what is that what is that likely to do to the way in which this industry operates? Um, how milk's going to be valued? Will the world market matter as much anymore? So a lot of very big questions around the industry as we look look out into that future. So that's that's one of the subjects in discussion and, and look, it's hopefully very interesting to farmers to you know, get a perspective on what it means for their future. 
Yeah, certainly a, a lot happening in the dairy industry. Dairy analyst Steve Spencer there speaking about some of the latest trends being seen in the national dairy markets. And while I'm speaking about dairy, the value of dairy products sold into China have hit a record level, a billion dollars over the last 12 months. The value of skim milk powder rose an incredible 48% last year due to demand for infant formula pushing prices up. Michael Curtis, who is a senior agricultural analyst at Rural Bank, told David Clawton the trade in dairy products to China has almost doubled in two years. So for the calendar year to November, um, we saw the value of dairy exports to China rise for, uh, by 12% uh, from the year before uh, to just over a billion dollars and on track to have finished the year at a record high, which uh, adds to really strong growth that we saw in 2021 as well. So it's been a couple of really strong years for dairy exports to China. And is that essentially skim milk? Yeah, that's right. It's been uh, primarily driven by skim milk powder. Uh, so that's been the, the key product there. Um, in 2022, we saw a rise in value of 48% um, to a, a new record high as well for uh, skin milk powder on its own. So, um, yeah, a really, really strong year there. Um, and that growth largely was due to prices rising. So we saw some really high prices for skin milk powder during the year, uh, although they have fallen uh, sort of in the last half of the year. Um, yeah, that price growth and, and high prices throughout the year uh, helped to drive that growth. So is that around infant baby sort of baby infant formula? Yeah, that that would be part of the product mix that it goes to. Um, Bed is uh, one of our uh, one of our key exports uh, for dairy in general, and and certainly one of the uh, major exports that we, we ship to China. And just in the last few months, they've, they've had issues with the, with COVID again. Do you think that's likely to to change things? Yeah, so that would have been a factor in um, the, the weaker Chinese demand that we've seen towards the end of 2022. Um, but yeah, hopefully that the, uh, the easing back of the, the COVID uh, management policies there will help to reinvigorate demand a bit, but we haven't seen that in markets yet to start this year. But um, yeah, hopefully that would start to come through uh, as the year unfolds. Australia, not the biggest exporter into China. New Zealand's still much bigger than Australia. Do you think there's room for, for exports to improve? Yeah, it could be a bit of a different year this year. Um, as you say, New, Air New Zealand is a, a strong competitor and, and generally it looks like global supplies are, um, are starting to improve after a, a couple of tight years. Um, and at the same time, Australian production um, is struggling a little bit at the moment. It's trailing on what we've seen in previous seasons. So um, it might be a combination of um, a slightly weaker demand at the moment, although we'd hope that it would improve um, combined with some improving global supplies and some weaker Australian supplies. It might see that uh, we don't see that record uh, eclipsed this year. Um, but, yeah, we'll be hopeful that, uh, yeah, that uh, China's demand will improve as their, their COVID situation changes. Michael Curtis from Rural Bank speaking there. So a bit of a look at what's happening in the dairy industry at the moment. It's uh, certainly seeing some interesting push and pull, but uh, those numbers into China, I guess, uh, seeing what happens when you when you um, send a lot to China and things change. So hopefully the industry can manage that relationship well. It is 16 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. We've got markets and weather coming up soon. But in the meantime, the Almond Board of Australia has released its crop estimate for 2023. 
156,200 tonnes of almonds are expected to be harvested. Tim Jackson is the CEO of the Almond Board of Australia and he says it's a strong figure given the issues growers have faced. The number is better than, than expected uh, after the, the myriad of climactic challenges that were thrown at growers over the last 12 months. Longer term, we were looking at 165,000 tonnes for the industry, so we're down at 156. So it's, that sort of reflects that there has been an impact by the floods, hailstorms, wind damage um, that have occurred since, uh, since Blossom. Um, but it's still a, a very strong number uh, based on the experiences we've had in, in some of the growing regions. You also had issues getting enough bees into states like Victoria and South Australia to help pollinate almonds. Has that played a role in also the crop that is going to be harvested in 2023? The shortage of of bees in in Victoria, especially where 60% of our crop is grown, certainly will have an impact. And I think the jury will be out on that one until we actually see some yield data. Um, The ABA has mapped where the stocking rates were down. And then we'll go back into those orchards with the cooperation of the farmers and see what those sort of yields are to get a, a, bit, a much better insight into whether the stocking rates that we've traditionally had, uh, which are five or six highs to the hectare, are required. So if they've still got a bumper crop at you know, two, two highs to the hectare, it may change a lot of people's thinking. Flooding has impacted the key growing regions late last year and into this year. What are growers telling you in terms of um, whether there were orchards that were inundated and things like that? Yes, there's been isolated instances of orchards being inundated with water. Some of those orchards have had uh, tree losses and uh, so that would also uh, reflect in the number being down on what we originally forecast. A bit early to see. We we hear that sometimes it takes up to six months for a tree to turn up its toes, but at this stage... um, you know, the flooding in the Riverina and along the Murray in Victoria and New South Wales has had an impact on some of the farms. How is this crop estimate carried out? Are you relying on growers to submit their own data or is there a bit more of a scientific method that's used? If we compare it to the United States, it is a subjective estimate. It, it relies heavily on the growers doing their own estimate and feeding that into the various markers and processes. And then the ABA aggregate that data across the markers and processes. So... The growers probably apply their own science case by case, um, but at the end of the day, we're relying on the forecasts from the markets and processes to aggregate the overall data. Now, the almond harvest tends to start in a couple of months. Given the weather that you've had, are things expected to kick off on schedule? So the almond orchards have had fairly mild conditions, so we're expecting a harvest to start a little bit later. Normally by this time of the year, you've got a lot of hull splits, especially on the, the predominant variety non-parel already. Uh, we're not seeing uh, or getting reports of too much hull split at all. Um, so you can't start harvesting until you get that hull split. So we expect that harvest across the regions probably is going to be a one to two week later start than, than normal. We've had almond growers uh, harvesting as early as January in some years where we've had hot, dry conditions. Uh, we certainly normally get... The best yields when we have hot, dry conditions, and then we've had anything but that in the last couple of years. Yes, it's been a remarkable season, really. That was Tim Jackson, the CEO of the Almond Board of Australia, speaking to Kelly Hollingworth. And it will be interesting to know if the uh, changes in the numbers of bees has affected the yields for the almond crops and uh, and what that might mean for the management going forward. We'll head across to the markets now, though, where John Traeger has the results from Dublin's sheep and cattle sale. 
Good afternoon. Numbers remained similar as agents offered 4,000 lambs and 1,000 sheep. Quality was again extremely mixed, with merino lambs more prevalent. Prices were similar to those of the previous week, slower rates. Extremely light lambs sold from 110 to 118, with light lambs ranging from 130 to 138. Medium weights sold from 176, with heavy weights selling to $255 per head. Hoggets sold from 110 to 148, as light ewes sold from 80 to 90. Medium weights ranged from 85 to 90, with heavies topping at $108. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, quality was fair to good as agents offered 250 live weight and open auction cattle. Competition was fair as prices sold around the easier trend of the previous sale. Ewing steers ranged from 362 to 430 cents as Ewing heifers sold from 250 to 364 cents with one sale to 408 cents. Grown steers sold from 200 to 350 cents with grown heifers selling from 232 to 340 cents. This is John Traeger, the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for that, John. And Peter Kerr has the results from Mount Gambier. Good afternoon, Cassie. This is the Mount Gambier Cattle Report for the 18th of January. Numbers lifted sharply as HH had 1,429 head of live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was generally good with weight and condition in all categories as a larger than normal field of trade and processor buyers competed with feeders and restocker orders in a cheaper market for price. Billy steers to the trade made from 360 to 423 cents, similar heifers from 360 to 400. Feeders operated on steers from 330 to 400 cents and on heifers to 362 as restockers saw steers from 400 to 422 cents a kilogram. Yielding steers to the trade made from 340 to 380 cents with heifers making from 285 to 370. Feeders operated on steers from 350 to 388 cents and on the heifers from 336 to 390 as restockers sought both sexes from 346 to 380 cents a kilogram. Ground steers and bullocks sold from 310 to 376 cents to the trade. Feeders support from 366 to 398. Crown heifers returned from 334 to 360 cents to the trade. Feeders operated here from 335 to 377 with a strong local restocker turning heifers back out from 347 to 365 cents a kilogram. A large run of mainly Frisian manufacturing steers range from 250 to 330 cents. Heavy cows sold from 275 to 322, lighter lots from 220 to 260, as a small bull offering range from 250 to 290 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. Now, I'll just take the opportunity to remind you that the Farmer of the Year Awards are open. Here's some details. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, head across to the weather now where it is significantly cooler today and uh, less miserable, less windy and uh, and causing grief around the state. Simon Timke, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, has the latest. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So what are you seeing on the radar now? Big change. 
Yeah, oh, it's a very different day to yesterday for most of the state. Still very hot right up in the far northeast where the, the change is still to move across. But we've seen the, the band of cloud uh, associated with that cool change extend right across most of the, the west and south of the state. Um, really just the far northeast corner now that's still uh, very hot with those northerly winds and the change gradually pushing its way over that part of the state uh, today. Um, there has been a, 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 a band of showers and isolated thunderstorms that moved across following yesterday's change. We did see a, a, a bit of rainfall around the place, uh, looking at the rainfall totals up to 9am to this morning, um, particularly sort of lower air peninsula, Kangaroo Island, lower southeast and the far southern part of York Peninsula, a few places picking up the order of, uh, of 15 millimetres, even 15 to 20 millimetres and, and generally sort of widespread rainfall of getting up to around 5 millimetres or so across the south and that band did sort of break up a little bit as it moved northwards but but still even over the, the southern parts of the pastoral districts and the Flinders district received a, a, a little bit of rainfall. Looking on the radar at the moment that band is continuing to, to sort of break up a bit but there's still some shower activity uh, around over the southern parts of the pastoral districts and the Flinders district uh, and through the afternoon I think we'll be a chance of seeing a little bit of uh, thunderstorm activity develop uh, and they could produce some, some gusty winds over, over those areas as well. Um, further south in the southerly flows following yesterday's change there has been a little bit of uh, light drizzly shower activity around particularly near the, the, the coast and, and the southern parts of the Mount Lofty Ranges there so there has been a, a little bit of uh, light rainfall total out of that but uh, not, uh, not any huge, uh, huge totals in it uh, but the radar is still showing a, a, a little bit about the uh, southern and, and eastern slopes of the Mount Lofty Ranges in particular so a, a little bit around today, but uh, uh, the main focus, I think, will be in the north with possible thunderstorms uh, this afternoon. Um, over the next couple of days, uh, uh, we'll see that clear away pretty quickly. I think by this afternoon um, or late evening, even uh, uh, those thunderstorms and showers in the north will be confined to just the northeast pastoral district. Uh, and, and for Thursday, uh, I, I think, We'll, we'll just have uh, that chance continuing in the very far northeast, and a little bit of light shower activity near near windward coasts again in that southeasterly airstream. Uh, uh, but dry conditions across the the rest of the state with that that cloud band um, gradually breaking up. So seeing a little bit more sunshine over most parts during the day on Thursday, uh, and even more sunshine around on Friday. I think just some very isolated light showers about uh, windward coasts on Friday, mostly during the morning, uh, dry elsewhere, and and mostly sunny conditions over large areas of the state for Friday. Um, mostly dry conditions continuing over the weekend and temperatures rising uh, a little bit, but the wind's still essentially southeasterly, so so not getting too hot, um, but uh, but generally warm to hot conditions over most districts. And as I said, dry conditions pretty much right across uh, the state for for the weekend. Early next week. Things change a little bit as we see a trough push across um, from the east uh, and that will bring some showers and um, isolated thunderstorms to sort of the, the southeastern quarter of the state, mainly taking in the agricultural area and far south of the pastoral districts for, for Monday, Tuesday, possibly extending into Wednesday as well.
So in general, not expecting a, a, a lot in the way of rainfall totals for the next few days. I think today will probably be the wettest with really not too much over the following four days. Uh, and rainfall totals today, I think less, less than two millimetres out of the light showers about the, the southern agricultural area near the coast and ranges. Maybe the odd spot picking up a, a, a little bit more over the southern parts of the pastoral and the Flinders district getting up to around five millimetres or so maybe. Um, and local heavier falls possible with uh with some thunderstorms possibly getting into the to the 10 to 20 millimeter range over the south of the pastoral districts and the the flinders district there but but generally after today mostly dry conditions for a number of days cassie yeah now that a uh, little bit of a sprinkle was quite welcome by my garden i'm sure other people welcomed it as well after such hot weather thank you so much for that forecast Simon timkey thanks a lot cassie as I said, Simon Timkey from the Bureau of Meteorology in the far west of New South Wales. The upper western is going to be mostly sunny. It's staying quite warm. There is a medium chance of showers in the east, chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening possibly severe. Overnight temperatures are dropping to 18 to 23 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach between 29 and 34 degrees. The lower western uh, could see a bit of a thunderstorm in the far east in the early morning, but it'll be mostly sunny during the day. Overnight getting down to 10 to 17 degrees, but the daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 20s. I'm Cassie Up. I've got more to come on the Country Hour for you today as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I hope you're having a great day today. Coming up, the Riverland grape growers and winemakers weigh in on the government's funding for a blueprint to help the industry navigate the tough times they're facing. As an industry, we've got lots of challenges, um, but we, we can't have a situation where we're just sort of lurching from you know, thing to thing, issue to issue, opportunity to opportunity. We need a, you know, long-term thinking, long-term planning, and so I think that's a wonderful, wonderful initiative. I'll get into that next. And staying in the Riverland, growers are being encouraged to get involved with the fruit fly bait and lure program after another fruit fly detection was made yesterday. I'll have more on that soon, but we'll find out what's making news first with Evelyn Leckie. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Making news this hour, the federal government says it hasn't decided yet if it will donate further military equipment or weapons to Ukraine. 70 Australian personnel have today been farewelled at a ceremony in Darwin as they prepare to fly to the UK to join an international training program for Ukrainian recruits. Australia has already provided 90 Bushmasters to Ukraine, but the country's ambassador is pressing the federal government to provide more of the armoured vehicles. The state government says it'll expand mental health services in the Riverland to support those impacted by the River Murray floods, increased access to support without, without a referral and more culturally safe services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will also roll out. And the WA government says record flooding in the Kimberley has destroyed about 70 structures. Rapid damage assessments are continuing in Fitzroy Crossing and surrounding communities with 38 homes and 37 businesses destroyed by flood water. And more news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Evelyn. 
Riverland wine growers hope the state government funding for an industry blueprint is the start of more support. The state government is putting $100,000 towards a 10-year blueprint for the industry. Growers are actually gathered at a series of demonstration days across the region today as they stare down the barrel of a very difficult vintage. Oxford Landing Vineyard manager Glyn Muster tells Eliza Berlach his thoughts on the next steps. Um, I think that's that's a great start. So um, more focus on the Riverland um, is a good thing, um, obviously, especially um, at the moment because we are doing it sort of tough um, with the fallout of China and the oversupply in our um, major red varieties. And are you, are you concerned that I guess this could become a bit more of a, a talk fest or anything rather than um, yeah putting some money towards some solutions that already might be there? Um, it look ho- hopefully not. Hopefully um, it's a start, but um, and then um, really, really pushing some solutions over the next sort of twelve months would be be a great start. So. And I've heard you guys have had quite a bright spot as well in finding alternate markets, especially with whites like Sauvignon Blanc uh, to the UK. Could you tell me a bit about that? Um, actually, um, the Oxalanding um, label pr- probably eighty to eighty five percent of it is exported to to the UK. Our Sauvignon Blanc has been a great success there. We, the Oxford Landing Sauvignon Blanc is actually the highest-selling Australian Sauvignon Blanc in the UK, but we've also had great success with our Chardonnay, our Pinot Gris. So we are probably a little different to other um, wine companies, uh, especially here in the Riverland. We're, we're probably, say, two-thirds whites to one-third red. So, um, yeah, that has been a massive success story with us um, pushing white varieties in the Riverland. And I guess what are some of the things that you've been doing here for your business to try to help it to survive through this tough vintage and beyond? Probably, look, the, our, our white grape varieties, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, um, those sort of varieties have actually been, um, been okay and have been thriving, so um, business as usual with them. But with the reds uh, and especially with the increasing prices of fertilisers, fungicides, etc., um, with those red varieties, um, just trying to minimal inputs, um, possibly um, reduce tons, moth uh, balling, those sorts of things, to um, to to cut costs on those um, th- those parts of the vineyards. But it has been a tough year. We've probably had the wettest sort of spring um, in the Riverland in the history of the Riverland. So minimal inputs, as in fungicides, on some of those varieties have been tough because we've had to try and keep. Um, First of all, um, downy mildew out of those varieties, but now uh, we're seeing a lot of um, powdery mildew um, popping its head up around the place. And we're at a, a grower information day today. Um, I guess, you know, up to you with how much you want to share on the numbers, but yeah, how, how many or how much of your um, Cabernet Sauvignon and Shiraz um, vineyards or, or vines are you thinking to mothball for this year? We, we're reducing tons in Shiraz and Merlot, but it's, it's it, it would be probably around that 30% of their Cabernet. Uh, and, and then I don't know, uh, I'm not quite sure because it's very early in the year and I'm not sure um, with the tonnages that will come in, but we could possibly be dropping some on the ground as well. It's, been, it's rained today. It's been quite a, a hard season for, for rain and downy mildew. Um, it's just one of the pressures... Um, I guess looking at, at the idea of a blueprint and, and more funding, what do you think, what would you hope for as a key priority uh, that state or federal governments could put more funding or support towards? Um, a, t- a tough one, but I think it's, um, I, I really think the 
in vineyards the cost of production is probably outweighing the return so it's really being subsidised for some, some varieties to actually so we can keep those permanent plantings alive and um, actually not have a massive vine pull or a massive regraft because because if we do that we will probably be three four years down the track and we'll actually be oversupplied in some of our white varieties and then so I think it's to try and keep that even balance between um, red and white varieties and probably um, be subsidised for those for those red varieties. Oxford Landing Vineyard Manager Glyn Muster speaking with Eliza Berlage. Wakery grower Henry Crawford has also welcomed the announcement of the funding for the blueprint. Well, I think it's it's brilliant. As uh, as an industry, we've got lots of challenges, um, but we we can't have a situation when we're just sort of lurching from you know thing to thing, issue to issue, opportunity to opportunity. We need a you know long term thinking, long term planning, and so I think that's a wonderful wonderful initiative. And Riverland Wine did ask for um, five million from state and federal governments, and uh, they're saying there could be more funding to be announced. But yeah, what what more funding would you like to see for what initiatives that you might need as a grower to you know get through this tough time? Well, I think ultimately, um, you know, the best best solution to all the challenge we face is to to sell more wine, and uh, particularly for this region, it's uh, through through exports. Um, but obviously, yeah, also opportunities in the in domestic market with, you know, new varieties and different approaches to viticulture and winemaking to produce a higher standard. But, yeah, it's, it's, I think supporting wine sales is, is fundamentally the key. And what are the biggest challenges for you as a grower at the moment? Selling Shiraz. <laughs> um, that's literally, yeah, we've uh, got, you know, significant plantings um, that uh, yeah, have gone in over the last few years, uh, obviously with the, with the boom a red boom I guess with China um, so you know hopefully um, something might happen uh, <laughs> a bit of positive talk in the media about what may happen with China but um, yeah that's that's really our biggest challenge at the moment is excess red grapes. And lastly is there anything the state or federal government uh, could do to provide immediate support for this vintage? Uh, look I don't believe so to be honest um, you know we've, we're sort of past the point of no return in terms of mothballing or anything those sorts of initiatives so growers uh, at this point have either got a crop there or they don't and if they can find a buyer for it good luck to them if they can't I guess it's a bit of bad luck. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Wakery grower Henry Crawford speaking there to Eliza Berlage. Riverland Wine is also going to be putting $50,000 towards the blueprint. Executive Officer Linda Rowe has welcomed the announcement as well. It's a fantastic start. It's an investment to support our industry now and into the future, and we're delighted to be working with the government um, on this. I, I understand you need to have a uh, vision and you need to have direction when, uh, when in, in an industry such as um, the the wine industry and what we've uh, seen happen over the past few years has been made it very difficult. But there will be some producers who are you know sailing very close to the wall at the moment. Is there any help available for those producers as well? We're in discussion with the government at the moment. Um, obviously, more, more needs to be done. We're also uh, working closely with the media to highlight um, what is actually going on in the region, and we really are working as quickly as possible to help people. The, is the state government looking to, to help with that promotion? I mean, particularly in light of the, the flooding that we've seen and, and all the other challenges that have been there for the industry, including input costs and the, uh, the uh, China uh, problems and tariffs as well. Yeah, look, you know, we'd really like things to happen a little more quickly, um, but the government's been fantastic in listening to us and 
listening to the issues that are going on within the region and we're really hopeful that more will come very soon. At the end of the day, our growers are saying to us, we, we need help to sell more wine. We need help to transition into other products within the industry. You know, it's, sometimes uh, the wine industry can be referred to as fashionable because the way consumers operate um, and um, consume wine changes. So we're seeing a trend that's going to lighter styles. We're seeing trends that are going to um, less heavy reds, low and no alcohol or less alcohol and so on. And um, the industry needs to respond, you know, to that consumer demand. Riverland Wine Executive Officer Linda Rowe speaking there. So the industry is supportive, but after COVID, China tariffs and flooding just in recent years, is this enough? Let me know what you think. You can call one three hundred triple two eight nine one or text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven has announced the money. She joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So Originally, Riverland Wine actually asked for $5 million in assistance. How did the state government come to a decision of $100,000 for a blueprint? So the blueprint is one part of assisting the wine industry in the Riverland. Uh, We had a forum towards the end of last year uh, in the Riverland and I was also up there last week and met yesterday too with uh, Riverland Wine. And one of the things that they really are keen to see is this 10-year blueprint because that is more of a strategic approach to what the problems are that are are being faced at the moment. So uh, one of your... um, the people you were speaking with there talked about you know, not wanting to see lots of vine pools, and certainly that's a fair big back that I've had. They want to make sure that there isn't, if you like, a, a sort of a knee-jerk reaction to the issues that are currently being faced, which are very serious, but instead a strategic response. So that's why I was so keen to be uh, able to support this blueprint, um, making sure that there are the opportunities and resources available to develop a blueprint that means that there will be a, a thought through and strategic response rather than just uh, you know, simply a knee-jerk response, which no one wants to see. Will there be further funding, though, available once this has been worked out, potentially in the millions of dollars like was asked for? Uh, well, as Lyndall mentioned there, uh, she, she and Riverland Wine is in discussions with the government. Um, I think what's really important to note as well is the work that's being done on a federal level in terms of re-engaging with China. We've seen some uh, you know, some positive meetings between the, the Prime Minister uh, and, uh, and China and also the um, uh, the foreign minister. Uh, I've certainly heard a lot of very positive feedback. It's early days yet, but re-establishing those ties with China and potentially opening up the trade with China again would be a very, very significant way of assisting. Uh, and that's something that uh, I'm very pleased to be able to see is, is progressing at the moment. It would be the Holy Grail. You mentioned the federal government there. The Ag Minister Murray Watt has visited the region. Is there any talk from the federal government, though, of support in the meantime? Uh, Well, I have been advocating to Senator Murray Watt that this is a a problem that needs to be addressed as a national problem. Uh, It's very significant in South Australia, and particularly in the Riverland, not only in the Riverland, though, uh, but also in in other states, particularly the uh, the inland areas. So this is something that needs a federal response, and so I will continue to advocate on that. Uh, And I also know that uh, Trade Minister Senator Don Farrell is very aware of it as well. I've had a number of conversations with him. Um, On a state level, uh, we've also uh, been... You know, very active in terms of 
really listening to what it is that the um, the growers and the winemakers are, are looking for. Uh, and indeed, that's how this 10-year blueprint and the support for it uh, has emerged. Have you had any indication on the way the government might be going in response to the advocacy you've been making to the federal government and the Ag Minister, Murray Watt? Uh, well, I'll be continuing to, to advocate strongly and, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get some positive outcomes from that. So no direction one way or the other yet? Uh, it's early days, yeah. And speaking of the blueprint, what is the, the timeline for it? When are you actually expecting to, to have a blueprint, given the issues are quite pertinent right now? Well, they are very pertinent right now and uh, uh, we're certainly wanting it to be you know, off the ground as soon as possible. But we are also conscious, of course, that given the flood situation, there is some distractions, shall we say, um, of in terms of, of the time that people are able to give to it. Um, but there's going to be a, a strategic committee appointed uh, and we're working very closely with Riverland Wine to make sure that we get it moving as quickly as is possible. When do you think that steering committee will be appointed? Uh, that should be within within the next couple of weeks, is my understanding. So are we talking a year or, or months? Is there any sort of indication how long it will take? Um, once the steering committee meets, I think we'll have a better sense of that because they will, of course, set the scope. They're looking at a 10-year blueprint, uh, so they want to make sure that it is that strategic and holistic approach, uh, and so they want to be doing it right. But at the same time, of course, um, you know, the, the issues, as you've mentioned, are pressing, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, you know where we're at with the vintage at the moment uh, for this year. So any changes are probably not re- – well, they're not going to be impacting uh, this current vintage. So I think there's a, a matter of making sure that we you know, proceed as quickly as possible while also – being very thorough and robust so that we do get the kind of uh, blueprint and pathway forward that the industry is looking for. Well, uh, everything could also be thrown on its head if um, if there is a return to China, if the China market reopens as well. Lots of unknowns still going forward. Thank you so much for your explanation there, Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven. Thanks very much. As I said, Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven there announcing $100,000 to support the development of a Riverland wine industry blueprint. It is 14 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Going to stay in the Riverland because a grower there is urging his peers to get involved in the fruit fly bait and lure program to prevent fruit fly from becoming endemic. With 21 outbreaks in the region now, the state's primary industries department says less than 10% of growers have actually signed up to the free program. Wakery citrus grower Philip Crone says the work is worth it to wipe out the pest. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an extra job. It's, it's, I don't really, if, I don't need any extra jobs to do. But, yeah, it, it, it is important, I think, to try and make sure we can try and get on top of the fruit fly in the Riverland. We don't want it to become endemic here because if it does become endemic, then we'll have a lot more expense um, and a lot more jobs and hassle to do all the time. So it'll be, it is, it is a hassle now and it's probably just for those people in the red area, they're the ones copying the brunt of it. The other people have got to, few extra things they have to do but the people inside the uh, 1.5k zones have got really quite a bit of hassle but saying that for me of of, I don't want it to become endemic because we're going to have a lot of these jobs we're doing we have to do every year all the time so if we can avoid that at all costs yeah we've got to really try and get on get on top of the problem. 
Do you know of many of many other growers who have decided to become part of the bait and lure program? Because I've heard Perth has had trouble getting getting more people to take take on the work. I haven't, but it's where the outbreak was here in Wakery uh, is was right on the outskirts of town. I've got a large near my largest property, and there isn't much other. There's only two or three other growers uh, that were uh, citrus growers that were inside. Yeah, I don't think. The other two I know, I don't think they have taken up. I haven't, I haven't really spoken to them very much. So. And what sort of costs and effects has Fruitfly had on your business so far? Yeah, it's it's been a real pain. As well, well as, as as for everyone, but yeah, the fruit fly outbreak here in Waker was just before a week or ten days before we were start to start our naval season in April, and that put a real. It, the biggest thing is restricting the fruit the movement of fruit from the property. So, we had to we can dip the fruit to make it leave, but then that sort of reduces the shelf life of the fruit by probably more than half. Um, so the fruit can't be exported. So we tried to avoid that at all costs if we could. Um, and just the delays in us waiting. We can bait spray, which doesn't really affect the fruit, but we had to bait spray for eight weeks before they'd accept that, that would, that's good enough for the fruit to leave the property. In those eight weeks, yeah, cost us tens of thousands of dollars. So, And then just applying the bait, I mean, it's probably, I don't know. For the, for the season, I would probably spend 10 or 20 grand on applying bait sprays for the fruit to leave the property, which if fruit fly become endemic, I'll have to do that every year all the time. So, and everyone else will too. So um, even if you don't, you're going to get crop losses due to fruit fly damage. So I think that's what gets missed a little bit is that if it, if it becomes endemic, and it, yeah, who knows, it could well be, there's still outbreaks happening, then uh, as a commercial Orchardist, primary producer, you're going to have to um, do have stuff you've got to do all the time. That once your fruit becomes close to being ripe, then you're going to have to treat it until it's finished harvesting. So for citrus, when we're picking Valencia's nearly for four or five months, and then before that, we're nearly picking year-round. So we've got to treat then nearly year-round as well, which is a, quite a big expense every year. And I think for, for the home gardeners and stuff, is if it becomes endemic, especially on a warm, humid year like this, your fruit trees in the back, half you, you might lose half your crop or have maggots in the fruit. If you're growing tomatoes, that half of them might be gone. I mean, it is a hassle for everyone, but if we can at all avoid fruit fly becoming endemic, then I think it's a lot better for everyone. How likely do you think it is that fruit fly will become endemic or do you think there's still, you know, some good hope for eradication efforts? Yeah, I don't know. I was hopefully hope, hoping that they could get on top of it and they'd certainly be working hard. I think the government has thrown quite a bit of money at it and a lot of effort. There's a lot of people going around trying to trying to eradicate it. I don't know, they seem to be losing the battle at the moment. There's just, I know in the last couple of weeks, every few days, there's another email coming out to say a, um, an outbreak has been extended or or in a new spot, so um, it is the peak time right now, I think, from now on, coming into when they're coming out. But, yeah, I think down, we haven't had any extension down here in Wakery, but the whole area now is classed as one, so the whole Riverland is being treated as one area. But, uh, yeah, I think if, if everyone can get on board and, yeah, try their hardest to get this eradicated, I would please encourage everyone to do it, and especially probably, I mean, I think it's really the... Uh, the home gardeners, that's where nearly 90, 95% of the uh, problem is coming from in that there's fruit on trees that is sitting there that is not, not being consumed or, and that's where the fruit fly is breeding. The, the outbreak here in Wakery was, was a, is a, a home gardener in the property right next door to mine. So um, I don't think they've found one fruit fly on my property, but 
it was in the garden and that's what's caused me all the problems and I think that's where 99% of the problems is so if, if the home gardeners can get on top of it and uh, if they've, once they've get your fruit, eat it and then whatever's left, if you're not going to use it don't just leave it rot on the tree or whatever just bag it up and put it away. Wakery citrus grower Philip Crowen speaking with Eliza Burlage. And that fruit fly eradication self-baiting program is available at the moment. You can go to the PERSA website, the Department of Primary Industries and Regions website, for some more details on that. It's eight minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Finally today, it's nice to hear a um, nice story or perhaps a heartwarming story coming out of these floods. A station owner in the far west of New South Wales who narrowly avoided flood damage to her property has thanked a good Samaritan for providing food and a boat to keep her safe. Bindara station owner Bob Arnold had been cut off at her house for the last six months, but since the flooding emergency in Menindi, the river rise began to threaten her home. Ms Arnold says her friend, John Erskine, made the 340-kilometre round trip with food, water and a boat to her property to help build a levee. Here's her story. I was in a spot of bother. I, the floodwaters have been here, of course, since, since we've been cut off since June, and so that's no great problem but for the last four months the only access has been from the other side of the river about nine and a half k's down and another thing that you need to sort of know is that whatever happens at Menindi we get it about three and a half days later but anyway we'd had the big rise in January and I was you know all cool with that and everything was going fine but on Friday I was here by myself and the water started rising and I thought oh, that's a bit unusual I better do some sandbagging so I'd started and I contained where the water was and went out to the sandhills to get some more and two hours later I come back and the water's come up, you know, like heaps more. So I thought, help, what am I going to do? Can't ring the neighbours, they're always flooded between me and them. So I rang the SES on the 1300 number. And what I've been doing over the period is using John Erskine as a sort of an unofficial anchor, I suppose. So if I'm doing something that's a little bit dangerous, I just text that I'm doing it and I text when I'm back. And, and that's sort of like someone knows what's happening. So anyway, um, in this case, I sent a message that I'd called the SES and, and he recognised that I must be in desperate need because he, you know, to reach out for assistance outside of our place, he thought, oh, this is, you know. So he just grabbed some food and water from his fridge and put put his boat on and, oh, he made them, had to make the um, inquiries of the local authorities because knowing that the road was closed from an Indy south on the eastern side, he, he rang the police and rang all the other people. And, and it ended coming up 340 kilometres round, putting his boat in and, and coming up the nine and a half k's and arriving and, and he um he was a small one thirty five Ferguson with a scoop on and he put up a dirt bank and to stop further inundation because I'd already lost a I'd lost the fight with the other one. You know, he saw a need, he acted and I'm really, really grateful. Um I know he does this for lots of people in Broken Hill, but I just thought that it was you know, it was a, it was I just want to say thank you, um, publicly I suppose in recognition of his selfless effort. You know, it's it, an unsung hero, really. And I know there's lots of others in the community that are too, but I just wanted to say out there that that was absolutely, yeah. Just for those who might not know, just how far is it from uh, John's place down to yours? Well, normally it would be um, 110 to Menindee and 50 down, so 160 k's one way. Um, it, it took 340 to go round because you couldn't come down the normal way. Yeah, so, so you know, a way that wouldn't have normally been. Well, so, in fact, on the way, he was. It was so, I rang at two thirty to the SES, but he, you know, started off uh, must be a little bit after that, and and uh, he got to Pooncarry and thought it's going to be dark by the time I get to where I got to put the boat, and so he stayed in Pooncarry and then come up the next morning. But that's that's an incredible 
seat for anyone to do just off their own bat, just um, because they heard that I had a need and there was, um, you know, I'd hurt my back doing the doing the sandbagging, so, um, you know, I was not as capable as I normally am. <laughs> no, totally understandable. And so what would have happened uh, had uh, John not made this uh, 340k trip down to, to help you? Well, I would have had a cottage inundated with water, which is, you know, got on wooden wooden stumps, so it would have sucked it up and it would have gone onto the flooring and it would have been, you know, all the flooring and the carpets and all the things inside would have been um, wet and there's a commercial kitchen and dining room as well, which got the dining room's got carpet on it, so it just would have been, uh, you know, a big cost factor or an insurance job or whatever it happens to be, but, you know, it's always harder to fix a job than it is to prevent a job from being done, so um, I'm, I'm immensely grateful that he just heard a need and just acted. He didn't, <laughs> you know, most people think, oh, well, I'll... That sounds, you know, bad and might do something about that. But, you know, he just went bing, bing, bing and, and it happened. So, you know, I know there's lots of stories out here like this about the flood and people acting. And I, you know, and I just think that we need to we need to say a public thank you to these people that have stepped out of their, their normal comfort zones and done something um, for someone else. Yeah, without request or fanfare or expecting rewards. Just It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And what, what sort of a person is John? I mean, I mean, just from what you've said uh, just now, obviously, uh, a fairly generous sort of person, but how would you describe John? He's the sort of guy that does a lot of things for a lot of people when he sees a need. He doesn't advertise that he does all these things, but I know he does a lot of things behind the scenes, just helping you know ordinary people in the community that he sees that have has a need. Do you want to talk about uh, some of your other good fortune? Some very lovely people have come up from Mildura to help you as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had some goats um, because the last one rise that rise that I'm talking about. The same rise actually put some of um, my animals in, in, in jeopardy. They, um, um, some of the goats were caught in places where they wouldn't normally be. I don't know how they were, where they were, but um, there was um, quite a number of them and they were up trees and in all weird places. So um, I was you know, telling a friend in Queensland about it on Friday and Friday afternoon or something. You know, I knew they'd already been there a week and I, was, I couldn't do it on my own. Um, and... So he rang mutual friends in Mildura and said, look, Barb's and Barb needs help. You, you've got to go up there this weekend and give her a hand. So um, two couples came up, um, just rang me on Saturday morning, said we're coming up. And, yeah, they helped get all the goats. Re- um, there was a lot dead. There was there was some drowned. They obviously don't have food and they, you know, fall off and get drowned. And um, But, you know, we, we yeah, salvaged 17, so they thought that was pretty good. And, um, yeah, so they're all safe home. Lovely big thank you from Bindara Station owner Bob Arnold, who is speaking to Bill Ormond about uh, the massive effort that her friend John Erskine went to to bring her food and water and a boat to help her with uh, her property when she was at risk of flooding. So uh, big thank you to everyone who's gone out of their way to help people affected by flooding. That's all from me, but Sonia Feldoff has lots more coming up this afternoon. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Cassie. Yes, now a lot of talk continues. Uh, what is it, more than a week now after the Sam Smith exclusive concert, but a about this whole new world uh, that we're learning is around. We're going to take a look at the world behind it. If you're not understanding influences and their impact, hopefully you'll get a glimpse of what that world means. And is it really 
that as influential as you think or, it is? No, I was going to say really that different from the way we've advertised in the past. Mm. Maybe it's just using different mechanisms but with the same theories. We'll talk to some advertising and influencer people about that after. after it is that. it is interesting the way you've seen the rise of it. So, yeah. so yeah, keep listening to your ABC local radio. If you want to catch more on the country, you can go online to abc.net.au slash rural. It's coming up to one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.